everyone, and welcome to the Homicide Homegirls podcast, a true crime podcast examining the true crime cases that fascinate and intrigue us. I'm Arielle. And I'm Amanda. Thanks, Thanks for, for joining, joining us. We can't wait to share the details of this wild episode with you. Happy Wednesday, listeners. Hey, y'all. I hope everyone is doing well and staying safe. So today we're going to have a couple short announcements at the end of the episode, so make sure you guys stay tuned for those. But other than that, let's just jump right in. We don't really have much of an intro today. Today we're heading to Wyoming, which is a first for us. Yes, indeed. So our goal is to cover cases from all 50 states eventually. And so far, as of this episode, we've covered cases from 12 different states and also a few international cases. I think we had a couple, Canada, the Rebecca Corium International Waters, and then New South Wales, Catherine Knight. Yeah, my homegirl. So, obviously, we need to step our game up and diversify the cases that we pick. Um, I know we've covered a lot from Louisiana, Texas, Florida, and Oklahoma, at least two from each. So, we'll try to move out of the South soon and, you know. And migrate. Yeah. I know I usually don't do this, but while researching, I looked up Wyoming just because I was curious. Because, like, what is in Wyoming? Right. Like, I almost... Other than the beaches of Cheyenne. <laughs> oh my god. A little Garth Brooks reference for, for you guys. Which I almost named my second child Cheyenne, but you know. <laughs> Would have been Cheyenne Brooks. So, very Garth. Someone's not obsessed. Yeah, a little bit. So, Wyoming had a population of about half a million people as of 2015, which translates to six people per square mile. Like, that blew my mind. Like, the boondocks? Like,. Are they just like, is there a lot of unpopulated land or are they just really spread out? Or I think it's just like really spread out. I think there's some deserts maybe. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. yeah, so fun fact, but quick sidebar. If you know me, you know that I'm just full of random facts that no one cares about. So I'm pretty sure I'm going to add these to my arsenal. Yeah, um, she's full of useless nonsense information. That I will tell you yeah. at any given time. When it's relevant. Sometimes even when it's not relevant. Welcome to my life. (laughs) But anyways, so Wyoming is nicknamed the equality state because it was... (laughs) Oh, equality. Yeah. I thought you said quality. I'm like, quality of what? There's like no one. Anyway, yes, equality state, not quality state. Uh, So it's nicknamed the equality state because it was the first state in the U.S. to give women the right to vote. But it actually gave women the right to vote while it was still a territory in 1869, 21 years before it even became a state in 1890. So, like, women have always basically had, like, the right to vote in In Wyoming. Wyoming. Yeah, like, that's amazing. I'm here for that. Mm -hmm. Like, go ahead, Wyoming. So, I found that, and I thought it was too awesome to not mention, you know. And one last factoid about Wyoming, because it piqued my interest, because... I didn't even know this was a thing, but apparently Wyoming has designated the Triceratops as its state dinosaur in 1994. But why? I don't know. I support that. But not every state has a state dinosaur. Look it up. We don't have one. Louisiana does not have one. The Triceratops is one of the best dinosaurs in my opinion, but you know, who knew there were state dinosaurs? Yeah, that's weird. Like, how cool though? Not many have them. Like, I think Arizona has one. Maybe Missouri. 
It's not a lot. So, anyway. So, back to the actual case that we're covering today. Today's case was a recommendation from one of our listeners, Haley F. from Riverton, Wyoming. Shout out. Thanks, Haley. So, and actually, I'd never heard of this case mm-hmm. when she told us. But today we're talking about the 1988 murder of 18-year-old Lisa Marie Kimmel, which is commonly referred to as the Low Miss murder. And I'll get into the reason behind that name later. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, Lisa Marie Kimmel was born July 18th. What up, girl? 1969. That's my birthday. Yes. Not the year, but... Obviously. <laughs> In Covington, Tennessee, and she was the eldest of four children born to Sheila and Ronald Kimmel. Lisa had two younger sisters and a younger brother. Tragically, though, Lisa's only brother died at the age of three due to an accident. So, wait, that, those numbers don't add up. What? Oh, I lie. Yeah, the oldest of four, two sisters and a brother. I thought she had four. No, no, no. she's one of four. <clears throat> um, yeah, like, so her parents have buried two kids, like, that's heartbreaking yeah so she was raised in although she was born in tennessee she was raised in billings montana yeah like i'm like making note of all these locations you're blurting out i'm like tennessee's not important that's just where she was born. tennessee montana wyoming yeah so she was raised in billings montana and in an eventual book that she would write more on that later but lisa's mother described her daughter as quote to others she was like any sweet teenage girl next door Lisa exercised at the YMCA with friends, watched popular movies, skied with her family, and shopped at the mall. She admired Michael J. Fox, and her favorite television program was Family Ties. Her favorite colors were pink and lavender, mostly pastels. She loved lasagna, pizza, and tacos, end quote. I'm getting vibes from her. I know. Birthday. Like, I feel like we could have been... Birthday buds. I know. I feel like we could have been friends. So, upon graduating from Billings Senior High School in 1987... Lisa moved into an apartment to prepare herself for living on her own when she went to college. And I read that she actually got a scholarship to study accounting. Uh-huh. Um, I forget. I think it was in a, a college in Washington. Okay. But so then she took a job managing an Arby's restaurant in Aurora, Colorado, which is near Denver. Because which we've heard of Aurora. Yeah. It was the shooting at the movie theater. Yep. The Batman shooting. So, Lisa's mother, Sheila, was a regional manager of Arby's, the restaurant chain, and the two commuted between Billings and Denver, like, 50, 555 miles a week. Every week, they commuted Wait, that. Denver and Montana are close together? Hmm? Yeah, Colorado and Montana are close to each other. Hmm. I think they're bordering states. Maybe. I don't know. I, I'm not real familiar with that side Geography. of the... Well, no, just that's, like, I have never been west of Dallas, so... Right. So, during the week, Lisa and her mother lived in an apartment complex in Denver, each in their own separate apartment, and they would regularly return to Billings, where Ronald, the, you know, the dad and husband, and the other Kimmel children resided. So, like, they were working at that Arby's in Denver, mm-hmm. and so during the week, they would live there in an apartment, and then they would go home for the weekends, like, to Billings to see their family. So, maybe it wasn't that close. It was 555 miles. Oh, no, it's definitely not. It's Montana, Wyoming. Oh, so they had to go through Wyoming. I was wrong. See, I'm even worse at geography than you. I was like, there's no way. I thought Montana was at the, like, Canada border. Oh, well, now that I know it's Montana, Wyoming, and then 
Colorado, Colorado this case makes, makes sense. sense. Which the 555 miles a week would be either round trip or... It's probably round trip. Like, half of that one way. Maybe. Or maybe it's just one way. Because I was like, why the heck did they need... No, it said weekly, 555 miles a week. But um, that would make more sense why they needed a separate apartment. Yeah, because it's a... That's a long drive. Yeah, I think... Let me see. Billings and... It says between Billings and Denver... So, let me check Google Maps. I usually do that, but... Look. It's loading. My phone's weird. No, it is. That's one way. 555 oh, wow. miles one way. Seven and a half hours, hours. Seven and a half hours. Yeah. Every week they would drive that to go home for the weekend. Yeah. Well, now that... Like I said, now that I know that it's Montana, then Wyoming, and then Colorado, or... Well, I guess if you're going... If they're going home, it's Colorado, Wyoming, right. and then Montana... Keep that in mind because that'll make more sense. Now this whole case makes more sense to me that I know that, that I realized that, or that you pointed that out. Is this another blonde moment? Yes. Stop blinking at me before I knock those glasses off your face. (laughs) Anyway, so at the time of her murder, Lisa was living in Denver, Colorado, and on March 25th, 1988, she dropped her mother off at the airport for a flight that she was catching. She was flying home to Billings. And Lisa was going to drive. And I read an excerpt from the mom's book because on Amazon you can like preview it or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I was reading a little bit about it and, you know, the mom said that honestly haunts me. That decision to let her drive Mm -hmm. and instead of like riding with her, you know. So like they typically did ride together. They typically did ride together. This This time they didn't. And the reason is because she dropped her mom off. For her flight home to Billings, because the mom was, this was on a Friday, the mom was going to go, was planning to go skiing, like, the next day. Mm -hmm. The family, like, skied a lot. And the reason that they couldn't ride together is because Lisa left Denver in her 1988 Honda CRX, which is a little two-door hatchback car. So, it was a two-seater. And she was headed to her parents' home in Billings, Montana, but she planned to stop on the way in Cody, Wyoming, to pick up her boyfriend, Ed Jarek, and then continue on to Billings, Montana to introduce her boyfriend to her family. So, like, she wouldn't have had... But but their destination was the same. Yes. Yeah, yeah. They were both going back to Billings. So, and according to Google Maps, had Lisa gone straight from Denver to her parents' home in Billings, the trip would have taken roughly, like, seven and a half, eight hours... Or even nine hours, I guess, depending on mm-hmm. the way that you take. But since she was stopping to pick up her boyfriend in Cody, Wyoming, it should have taken her about eight hours to get to his house. Mm-hmm. And also, forgot to mention this, Lisa's car was very distinctive. Although it was a black two little two-door car, that's, you see, it, that sounds like it's pretty typical. Mm-hmm. Her car had a vanity license plate or a custom license plate on it that read... Lil Miss, L-I-L-M-I-S-S, mm-hmm. because she had gone by this nickname since she was a kid, because her grandmother always called her Little Miss Lisa Marie, so that's where the case earned its infamous moniker. Mm-hmm. That's why people called it the Little Miss murder. So Lisa was last seen alive at approximately 9.06 p.m. on March 25th, 1988, when she was pulled over 
by a Wyoming state trooper and issued a ticket for doing 88 miles per hour in a 65. She really is me. She really is me. (laughs) And this was near Douglas, Wyoming. So Lisa didn't have enough cash on her to pay for the ticket, which I guess back then. Whoa. Yeah, I guess back then in the 80s, you had to like immediately pay the ticket. That's that doesn't make any sense because a lot of people don't know this, but a ticket is an arrest. If it's misdemeanor charges, that oh, wow. what they give you is misdemeanor summons. Oh, like it really? is a charge. Yeah, you could t- technically go to jail for speeding. Oh. But they, I mean, it's not worth the paperwork. It's just yeah. a misdemeanor. So that doesn't make any sense that she had to pay it then because where's her trot? You know, yeah. where's her court date? Oh, true. That's true. weird. Yeah, that's what. That's what the mom said in the in the book, you know, and. So she didn't have enough cash to pay for the ticket, so the officer led her to an ATM machine in Douglas, but her card wouldn't work. Like, at the time, you could only use your card at your bank, Mm -hmm. like your ATM card at your bank, and it wasn't her bank, so it wouldn't work. So the officer had a choice to make. He could either put Lisa in jail until she came up with the fine, or the money to pay the fine, or he could allow her to sign the ticket, and as long as she promised to mail in a payment... So he let her, you know, sign the ticket and continue on her trip. And her signature on the ticket verified this sighting. Right. So Douglas is about 264 miles and a little over four hours from Cody, Wyoming, where she was headed. So it seems like she was about halfway through her trip and she was on time. Mm-hmm. Because her boyfriend gave an interview saying that um, he had talked to her and she said she'd probably be in around midnight. So, you know, she was basically on, t- on, on schedule, schedule, you yeah. know, so. I, I'm, like, my mind is still blown. Like, do you, does the officer just turn in the cash at the end of his shift? Like, he's a cashier? Yeah. Like, can that, you, can you that, reconcile my, my, my cash? Like, right. I found that weird, too, but maybe, I don't know. I'm going to look more into that, because that is, like, like I want to know how it worked. Right. That's weird. But other witnesses also reported seeing Lisa later that evening. But in Casper, Wyoming, which is like 50 miles from Douglas where she got the ticket, and when Lisa didn't arrive in Cody as planned, her boyfriend, Ed, contacted her family, and her mother reported her missing by 9 a.m. on March 26, 1988, and a search for her quickly began. And Ed not only contacted her parents, he also contacted authorities in like three different states, like all three states. You know? They acted quickly. Yeah. Color- Good. <laughs> yeah. He contacted authorities in like Colorado Montana and Wyoming like just mm-hmm. you know covering all the bases you know seeing if because I mean it, it was 88 like nobody had cell phones back then you know mm-hmm. it's not like you just call her so because of the custom license plate on Lisa's car Lil Miss as I said and we'll post a picture of it investigators hoped that her car would be easy to spot however despite extensive searches by police they were not able to locate her car. And Lisa's father even chartered a small plane to fly over the route that she traveled, mm-hmm. like to try to see if they could spot her car from the air. Mm-hmm. But even those efforts didn't assist in locating the car. And in addition to chartering the plane, her father also drove the route in his own vehicle from Denver through Cody and onto Billings, but he never spotted Lisa or her car. Dang. So her parents were like on it, like mm-hmm. trying to, you know, they. Which, you know, they say the first 48 hours is the most important when yeah, someone goes missing. Yeah, and we come across so many cases where people are like, 
oh, you know, like, uh, took six days to report somebody missed. I'm like, right. what? Right. At least they, you know, yeah, they did what they should have done. Right. So, unfortunately for Ron and Sheila Kimmel, their worst fears would be realized just eight days after their daughter went missing. Around noon on April 2nd, 1988, a fisherman located the partially nude body of a female in the North Platte River just southwest of Casper, Wyoming, near what is known as the Government Bridge, which is an abandoned service overpass only used by county workers and fishermen. So it's not like a busy bridge or anything. And this body would later be identified as that of 18-year-old Lisa Marie Kimmel. So this is about 50 miles from where she got pulled over, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Casper. Yeah. Lisa's autopsy stated that Lisa had lots of bruises and abrasions, mostly on her wrists, ankles, arms, and legs. Lisa's body did not originally show ligature marks. However, ligature marks showed up after her body was embalmed. Hmm. Maybe they showed up, like, because they were, like, moisturized, I guess. Like, you know, when you embalm somebody, right? Yeah, but wasn't she in She was water? in the water. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. That's a whole nother thing I never want to understand. Right. Lisa's autopsy also revealed that she had been dead for at least 36 to 46 hours before being found in the river. So, the coroner doesn't believe she was killed immediately because they found her body eight days after she went missing. So, they think whoever had Wait, her, so she was dead for almost four days. Or no, almost two days. Three. 36 hours is three. No. 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 A day and a half. Yeah, a day and a half to two. Day and a half to two. Yeah. Um, so they think she was dead for that amount and then tossed into the river? No, I think they think she had been in the river that long. Like, so like whoever murdered her, kidnapped her on like the day she went missing and then held her for a certain amount of time and then tossed her in the river. However... Because Lisa's body was in the cold water of the North Platte River, the time of death was difficult to estimate accurately, so that's just mm-hmm. his best guess. Mm-hmm. Lisa's cause of death was internal and external bleeding due to six stab wounds, five in her chest and one in her abdomen. All of the stab wounds were five and a half to six and a half inches deep. Oh my god. Each stab wound struck vital areas of Lisa's heart and left lung. Three of the stab wounds went all the way through and struck her spine. Lord. Right. The coroner also identified a four-inch fracture to Lisa's skull caused by a violent blow to her head, likely before she was stabbed. Dang. According to the coroner, that blow alone would have been fatal in an estimated two to six hours had she not first bled to death. And the coroner testified that each of the stab wounds would have been fatal, like on their own. Right. But Lisa was likely unconscious after being hit in the head and likely never even knew she was being stabbed. Like silver lining, maybe? Yeah. I mean, at least she didn't feel that. Yeah. It's terrible. I know. Lisa's body had not fully decomposed at the time it was discovered, and an analysis of her stomach contents revealed that she had eaten something resembling beef stew an estimated two to four hours before she was killed. So, whoever had her was feeding her, I guess. Because she was traveling. Right, like, you wouldn't have eaten beef stew on the road. Right. Lisa also had a fractured hip, but the coroner concluded that this likely happened when she was thrown from the bridge. Mm -hmm. 
The coroner did not observe any defensive wounds on Lisa's body that would indicate she put up a fight. Which makes more sense that her head blow. Right. But, I mean, if she was unconscious Mm -hmm. from the blow to her head, she couldn't fight back, Mm -hmm. you know? Lisa's toxicology report revealed that there were no drugs or alcohol in her system. And the material used to bind Lisa, the knife used to stab her, and the weapon used to hit her in the head have never been recovered. During the autopsy, the coroner was also able to determine that Lisa had been raped. There was semen found in her vagina and on the panties she was wearing, which were the which was the only article of clothing she was wearing when her body was found. I said partially nude earlier. She only had panties on. Yeah. I don't really understand. Like, if you're going to rape somebody and leave them damn near naked, like, leaving panties behind is... Like, there's going to be DNA. Like, you're an idiot. (laughs) Right. So, samples of the semen were taken and preserved, and DNA was eventually extracted from those samples. And this preserved DNA would eventually lead to Lisa's case being solved. So, good for them for doing that in the, you know, in 88. I Mm -hmm. mean, DNA was not nearly what it is now. And I know we talk about that a lot, but, you know. DTL. Oh, yeah, Derek Tudley. Yeah, and I'll, I'll I'll circle back around to that mm-hmm. in this episode. So, police originally searched the area where Lisa's body was discovered, and they found blood that was the same type as Lisa's on an old highway bridge known as the Government Bridge. So, when you say that, A positive, B positive, whatever. Same right, blood like same type. blood type, mm-hmm. yeah. And according to the police, and this is the bridge that I previously mentioned. The Government Bridge. Mm-hmm. The bridge is not easily accessible and it's infrequently used, so police hypothesized that the murderer probably lived in the area because, mm-hmm. you know, most people don't even don't use that bridge, mm-hmm. you know? So, in March of 1989, and this is, okay, this is really, really weird. In March of 1989, a friend of Lisa's contacted Lisa's mother and told her that she had been li- visiting Lisa's grave and saw a very strange note attached to like the headstone what yeah so lisa's father ron went to investigate and found a handwritten note taped to lisa's headstone and sealed in a plastic bag as if to weatherproof it you know so like it wouldn't get wet and like yeah it's creepy oh just wait the letter was dated november 13th 1988 and this was in march of 89 that they've noticed it but I'll get back to that. So, like, five months-ish. Yes. Uh, but I'll wait, get... what month was she murdered, discovered, missing? She went missing in March of 88. Okay. So, this yeah. was a year after um, the friend discovered the note. or Yeah, like a, a year, year around the year anniversary, which is probably why she was visiting. Mm-hmm. So, the note read, quote, Lisa, there aren't words to say how much you're missed. The pain never leaves. It's so hard without you. You'll always be alive in me. And that's... I'm reading this as it was. Mm -hmm. You'll always be alive in me. Your death is my painful loss, but heaven's sweet gain. Love always. Stringfellow Hawk. End quote. Excuse me? So, and, you know, like I said, it was dated November of 88. Mm -hmm. And the friend saw it in March of 89. And Lisa's parents knew the note had not been there since November because they had visited... Lisa's, you know, grave. So it was like post-dated. Right. They had visited Lisa's grave between then and March when the note was found. So Lisa's parents brought the note to the police. Fingerprints? 
wrote they the police wrote a report and looked into it and as it turns out stringfellow hawk is a character from a tv show called airwolf that aired in the 80s which apparently is like was super popular but i've never heard of it right. so moving on uh i know it sounds a little bit odd that i randomly included this but much later the handwriting on the note would be a match to lisa's murderer so he wait she was buried where i'm pretty sure in billings wow where she was from so like he traveled there yes that's so creepy yeah and um there's like i was like why sign it as like you know this random tv character but apparently that tv character like always like was losing people on the show but at the end of the show he would somehow end up being the hero or whatever so maybe maybe the murderer like looked up to him or wanted to like emulate him but like even his message is like okay you're missed Mm -hmm. he like the pain never leaves it's hard without you right um right like love all like if he was a total stranger was he a total stranger yes that's weird right so yeah that was just creepy and then you know Lisa's mom has said, you know, if the the cops did, like, write a report and kind of looked into it, but she's like, if they would have maybe dug a little bit further, looked a little bit harder, they could have figured it out because the handwriting ended up being a match to her murderer later on. But it's like, how do you, where where do you even start, you know? I don't know. I mean, I feel like they could have fingerprinted the the Ziploc or the... Right, the bag that it was in. Yeah. So, Lisa's case quickly went cold as police didn't have many leads, but not for lack of trying. Don Flickinger, a federal agent from Billings, Montana, who has since retired, told the Casper Tribune in 2003 that while working the case, he personally traveled to several states, including Texas, Nevada, even as far as Alaska, while investigating Lisa's murder and attempting to bring her killer justice. Like, like all while investigating yeah like they were following leads and it brought them to those states he spent six years taking blood samples from many people for dna to compare to the sample that they had interviewing people and even consulting psychics his investigation even led him to consider other cops as suspects that crossed my mind because that was the last person to see her yeah flickinger reached mandatory retirement age in 1995 which ended his official role in Lisa's murder investigation. However, he has kept up with the case and kept in touch with Lisa's parents. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until 14 years after Lisa's murder that investigators would get a huge break in the case. In July 2002, there was a match on the DNA collected from Lisa's body. The DNA matched a then 58-year-old man named Dale Wayne Eaton, who was a Colorado prisoner. What? Yeah, more on why he was incarcerated later. Actually, Eaton's DNA, match DNA found on Lisa in 98. Like, they made the match in 98. However, this information was not made public until 2002. So I don't know like, if there's like red tape. Even, yeah, did her parents not even know? I don't know if they told her parents. It just wasn't made public, so I don't know. So... Like I said, I don't know why it took four years. You know, maybe there's like red tape or, or maybe they took his sample in 98 because that's when he was arrested. 
and maybe it took four years to get the sample back or mm-hmm. to run it against CODIS. Well, oh, you know what? Remember you said they they collected it and then later extracted DNA. Oh, yeah, so maybe that's what it was. I don't know. I'm not exactly sure. But also in 2002, investigators searched Eaton's property near Mineta, Wyoming. So he did have property in Wyoming. He Yeah, he lived in Wyoming. Did I not say that? No. Did you? Well, he was in prison in Colorado at yeah, the time, but, but he's from Wyoming. Oh, I'm he thinking Montana. In, I'm thinking Montana. Yeah, he lives in Wyoming. Oh, yeah, her parents are from Montana. Yeah. Lisa and her parents are from Montana, yeah. So where he lived is about 75 miles northwest of Casper, which, if you remember, that's allegedly where Lisa was last seen, according to witnesses. Because the last confirmed sighting was in Douglas with the police officer, but people have reported seeing her in Casper. Like 50, later, 50 miles. 50 miles from and then Douglas. They said that and then she was found just southwest of, of Casper. Casper. Right. So, during their search, police finally located Lisa's car, buried on Eaton's property. What? Yes, her whole car. Like in the ground? Yes, like 10 feet, I think. What? Yeah. Did he have like an excavator? I don't know. Lisa's car had been stripped of valuable parts and was missing all four tires, its aluminum wheels, so I guess like the rims, Mm -hmm. um, the front bucket seats, the stereo, and the gear shift knob. Following the DNA hit and location of Lisa's car on his property, Eaton was charged with Lisa's kidnapping, rape, and murder in April 2003 as follows. First degree premeditated murder, aggravated kidnapping, aggravated robbery, first degree sexual assault, and second degree sexual assault. In addition to all these charges, he was also charged with three counts of first degree felony murder. Because, and I think I read that because they he had her for so long, like for a couple days, mm-hmm. it, that's why they leveled like three different murder charges, felony murder charges. Did that hold up? Uh... Like well, in Louisiana, if you have three murder charges, there's three, three bodies. People. Yeah, and I thought that was weird, so I don't know. So, although Lisa's car was recovered, several items were never recovered her clothes, purse, driver's license, some of her jewelry, and money that she apparently withdrew from an ATM. Oh, you know, that was gone. Yeah. Because, you know, she said she had some cash on her, but not enough to pay her ticket. I wonder if so. that's where the civil robbery came in. Oh, yeah, probably so. And her jewelry. Yeah, simple robbery is yeah. like taking something, possessions from a person. Right. Like that they're in possession of. Mm-hmm. So, in February 2004, Dale Wayne Eaton went to trial. And according to court documents, two theories emerged during his trial regarding how he and Lisa crossed paths because like I said they didn't know each other Mm -hmm. the first was according to a fellow inmate of Eaton's and he said that Lisa gave Eaton a ride to quote help him out end quote and apparently this was like a jailhouse confession like he Mm -hmm. allegedly Eaton allegedly told this other inmate about what happened when he was in prison like he confessed to him so he testified but his testimony has been subject to some scrutiny because Eden's lawyers argued that this witness would had the potential to get less time or get time taken off his sentence for testifying. Okay. So I guess they're questioning like the 
accuracy yeah, of his, you know, if he's lying, basically. Mm-hmm. But according to the inmate's testimony at trial, Eaton made sexual advances toward Lisa, which she rejected, and slammed on the brakes and was going to make him get out of her car, quote, in the middle of nowhere, end quote. The inmate then said that Eaton told him things spun out of control and he subdued, raped, and killed Lisa. What do you mean, got out of control? Spun out of control, right. Right. This inmate's testimony was given during the guilt-innocence phase of Mm -hmm. the trial. And also, according to court documents, the second theory was presented by Eaton himself during the sentencing phase of the trial. A physician who had examined Eaton for purposes of preparing a mental evaluation testified that in their, I guess, sessions or meetings... Eaton told him he had returned to his home late on March 25th, 1988, and noticed Lisa's car parked on his land. He thought there were two people in the car and assumed that he was being robbed. Allegedly, Eaton was already in, quote, an angry state of mind, end quote, and got angrier when he found Lisa's car there. According to the physician's testimony, Eaton approached Lisa with a gun and took her to his makeshift home, which was apparently an old school bus. Mm-hmm. That had, like, no electricity or no running water. And I've seen several places say that Eaton held Lisa captive for six days. Wait, so she went to his house? That's what he's saying. Oh, because she needed a ride. But, but yeah, no, he's saying he showed up at, at his house and found her car just parked on his property. So I don't but, know. But first he said that she gave him a ride to help him out. But if That's what he allegedly told the inmate. The inmate. So who knows what the truth really is, you know? Oh. Yeah. Let's see. Further details of this version of events are similar to the end result of the first version. Things spun out of control, and Eaton ended up raping and killing Lisa after keeping her on his property for several days so that he, quote, would not be alone at Easter, end quote. Wait, so he's not alone, but he is in the presence of a corpse? Or a girl. I don't think she was dead yet. Oh, okay. But see, that was weird, because from my research, Easter Sunday was April 3rd. 1988, which is the day after her body was discovered. Right. So I'm thoroughly confused. Maybe his original plan was to keep her through Easter so he wouldn't have to be alone, but like he snapped and killed her before that and then Maybe. disposed of her. But like I said, that came from court documents. So <laughs> so the guilt-innocence phase of the trial lasted from February 23rd, 2004 through March 15th, 2004. And the penalty phase lasted from March 18th. 2004 until March 20th, 2004. So that's pretty quick. I mean, mm-hmm. three days after. Because, you know, sometimes it's like a delayed. A yeah. or so, yeah. A sentencing hearing was held on May 20th, 2004, and Eaton was sentenced to death. Yes, but I know you about that ruined my life, so. Yeah. So in April 2004, just one month after Eaton was sentenced to death, Lisa's family was awarded $5 million in a wrongful death lawsuit. And as a result of this lawsuit, Eaton's property was awarded to Lisa's family. The family burned down all of the buildings to the ground on July 18, 2005. No way! It would have been her 36th birthday. So they just own the land now? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I guess that was pretty cathartic for them, like, being able to burn down. Like, like exhilarating. Yeah, and, like, get rid of any... Any bad vibes bad, memories. or memories of like where your daughter was, you know, mm-hmm. tortured and raped and murdered. Mm-hmm. I would have lit it on blaze. I would have blazed that. I don't know if they still own the land. They might have just sold it, you know. Yeah. So. 
Now I'm going to talk about Amanda's favorite word. Appeals. Mm. See, I told you he was about to ruin my life. Oh, no. So in January 2005, Eaton's lawyer filed their first appeal. So this was how many years after his sentencing? His sentencing was May 20th, 2004. So like months. Months that ha- Like, you're allowed to do it that quickly? I guess so. So they claim that Eaton received inadequate defense counsel. However... Oh, that's your bad. <laughs> however, this appeal would be denied six months later. Just a warning, this case has a lot of back and forth. And unfortunately, this is just the beginning. So instead of going through every single appeal attempt and ruling, I'm just going to tell you there were a ton of them. And we would literally be here until like 2021 if I tried to list all of them. Really? Yes. Like it was ridiculous. So I'm just going to say that between his first appeal in January 2005 and August 2013, which is where I'm going to pick up because that's the more important one. Yeah. Eden's case was changed numerous times. I'm talking like 10 times. What do you mean changed? Like appealed, appealed, oh, like pink rejected. Yeah, forth. like he, he would appeal it, they would reject it, and then he would appeal it, and then they would reject it like back and forth, back and forth. Yeah. It was exhausting reading about that. So his execution date was also set at least three times, but his execution was stayed each time. And for a while, he's been the, he was the only inmate on death, death row. row in Wyoming. So, don't you get, like, you can't just appeal umpteen times. Don't you have a limit? I think so. I think he's on his last one now, but I'll get there. So. You just ruined it for me. What? Just... Anyway. <laughs> in August 2013, Dr. Kenneth Ash, who was the psychiatrist who evaluated Dale Wayne Eaton during his trial his original trial he testified as part of an appeal by eaton that eaton's legal team had found evidence indicating that he suffers from mental illness dr ash testified that new information has surfaced about eaton's background and his family medical history which indicates that he may be suffering from bipolar 2 mm-hmm. and according to medicalnewstoday.com bipolar 2 disorder is characterized by cycles of depressive episodes followed by hypomanic periods, which is a period of mood and behavior that is elevated above normal behavior, but is not as extreme as a manic period. Oh, so it's like a medium. Yeah. Eaton was asking the judge to reconsider his death sentence based on claims of ineffective counsel during his trial. So after being on death row for 10 years, Eaton would catch a break. In November of 2014, U.S. District Judge Alan B. Johnson agreed with Eaton's lawyers and vacated Eaton's death sentence and ordered a new sentencing hearing, ruling that Eaton did not receive an adequate defense because his lawyer did not present factors during the penalty phase of his trial that may have given jurors reason to consider sparing his life, including his low intelligence and abuse he suffered as a child. The judge gave prosecutors the option of commuting Eaton's death sentence to life in prison without the possibility of parole or prosecutors could bring the case before a new jury and seek the death penalty again. Wait, so he could either have a new trial, uh, a new sentencing hearing, hearing, or they could redo the whole case, the whole trial with a new jury. No, not redo the whole trial, just redo the death penalty portion of it. Like, so they either could just commute his 
death like sentence. Like his guilty, his guilty verdict would remain. Yes, it's just the sentencing part. Okay. Of it. Prosecutors opted to try the case before a new jury and seek the death penalty. Eaton's lawyers requested the judge prevent prosecutors from doing this. However, the judge denied this request. In September 2015, a judge ordered Eaton to undergo an evaluation to determine if he was competent to face the death penalty again. Then, in December 2015, a judge barred the state from proceeding with a new death penalty hearing against Eaton until Eaton's pending claims were settled in federal appeals court. Because they had mold. He has, like I said, it's been back and forth, back and forth. So he had so many different claims that the judge was like, no, we can't do anything until these are resolved. Mm-hmm. One of Eaton's claims is that too many years have passed for him to get a fair death penalty hearing. Whatever that means. But the federal appeals court finally ruled in July 2019 that Eaton can still be subject to the death penalty. And a month later, the Wyoming DA announced that they would still pursue the death penalty. So in February 2020, Eaton requested that the U.S. Supreme Court review his case stating that his mental competency was not properly determined by lower courts. The U.S. Supreme Court announced on May 19, 2020, so what is that, like two or three weeks ago, Mm -hmm. that it would not hear Eaton's appeal case. The Supreme Court did not give an explanation for why they declined to take the case, which, according to an article on BillingsGazette.com, is typical for the case's that the Supreme Court declines to take. Like, they generally are not going to give you any explanation. They're just going to deny, decline to take it. I mean, they don't have to give you an explanation, so... I'm sure they have a bigger fish to fry. Right. So, as of this recording, June 7th, 2020, Dale Wayne Eaton's fate is still in limbo. But we'll follow the progression of the new hearing and give you guys an update if and when there are any developments... But if this case continues the way it has over the past 15 or so years, I'm sure there will be a lot more back and forth still to come. Mm-hmm. So just some little sidebars. Wyoming has not carried out a death sentence since 1992. And several death sentences have been overturned on appeal since then. And I think it's like a heated debate in Wyoming whether they're going to abolish the death penalty mm-hmm. at all. Because, you know... I don't think it's just Wyoming, but like the whole U.S. I think there's like a shortage of the the drugs, right? So they can't put prisoners to death anyway. But Lisa's parents, Ron and Sheila, have attempted to visit Eaton in prison a few times, but he refused each time. They've also written letters that have gone unanswered. Wait, they want to talk to him? Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. The Kimmels think that Eaton is likely to die of natural causes in prison before he's executed. I mean, when was that? In 2002, which was what, 18 years ago? He was what, He was 50, 58? Yeah. So he's like 76 now. So, I mean, he's getting up there. Yeah. Although Eaton's lawyers have argued that his mental health issues played a big role in his decision to rape and murder Lisa Kimmel, Eaton's past wasn't without violence. Dale Wayne Eaton committed his first crime in September of 1961. Oh, here we go. When he was 16. Apparently, Eaton sold a rotten watermelon to a woman, and when she complained, he stabbed her in the back and fled. Did she die? No. The woman recovered, and Eaton was arrested the next day driving a stolen pickup truck. Jesus. Yeah. He was sent to Buena Vista Reformatory for the crime, but this was just the beginning of his life of crime. 
1997, Eden offered Shannon Breeden, her husband, and their then five-month-old baby help after the family's car broke down near the Red Desert in Wyoming. However, the seemingly good Samaritan turned out to be anything but when he later pulled a gun on the family in an attempt to abduct them. Jesus Christ. But this family was not going down without a fight. Shannon and her husband beat Eaton with his own rifle, stabbed him several times, stole his van, then left him bleeding in the desert. So, like, good for them. How many lives does he have? Right. As a result of this attack, Eaton was convicted of aggravated assault. However, due to his lack of a criminal record, because I guess when he was 16, it probably wasn't on his record Mm -hmm. because he was a minor. He received a short sentence in a pre-release program in Casper, Wyoming. However, Eaton eventually skipped out on this sentence, and several months later, Eaton was located camping on nearby National Forest land and brought in and convicted of being a felon in possession of a deadly weapon because he had a gun on him, Mm -hmm. and subsequently sentenced to 7 to 10 years at the Federal Penitentiary in Florence, Colorado. While in jail for this offense in 1998, a sample of Eaton's DNA was taken and entered into CODIS, which is what ultimately linked him to evidence recovered from Lisa Kimmel's body. Five years later, Eaton was extradited back to Casper, Wyoming, and charged with Lisa Kimmel's 1988 rape and murder. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like I said earlier, we were going to come full circle to Derek Todd Lee because had they taken his DNA when he had been arrested for a felony... They would have caught him a lot sooner. That, and he started off young and right, escalated. That too. Also, in September of 2001, Eaton killed his cellmate in a fit of anger and was charged what? with manslaughter. Right. He should be the death penalty regardless of Lisa's case. Right. Like, he's just on one. I mean... <laughs> so, a former FBI profiler named Greg Cooper has said that he believed Lisa Kimmel was murdered by a very organized serial killer. According to Cooper, aspects of the case were similar to those found in cases where a serial killer was believed to be the perpetrator. Eaton keeping Kimmel's beloved, beloved car as a trophy, mm-hmm. quote-unquote trophy, and using a methodical way of murdering her. Also, FBI supervisory special agent Ronald P. Walker also found the binding marks on Lisa's arms significant. He pointed out that Eaton removed the bindings before disposing of Lisa's body in the river, which suggests that Eaton knew they could be used as evidence if and when Lisa's body was recovered. So he's not dumb. Right. So, in a 2013 article on wyomingpublicmedia.org, the Fremont County Sheriff's Office announced that it believes Dale Wayne Eaton may be involved in the 1997 disappearance of a Lander, Wyoming woman named Amy Rowe Bechtel. Mm-hmm. Bechtel disappeared near a running trail on the Loop Road outside Lander. Apparently, she was a track star in college, mm-hmm. so like she ran a lot. According to Detective John Zerga, Eaton has always been on the list of suspects, and they have questioned him about Bechtel. However, he hadn't been talking. Mm-hmm. But Detective Zerga said, quote, We've talked with his family members. We've talked with some FBI profilers, some cold case workers in Colorado, the detectives that did the low Miss case, and we believe through all our interviews, there's a good reason to believe Dale was involved with this, end quote. Detective Zerga also said that the profilers they have spoken with also think Eaton could be a good match 
for the Great Basin serial killer responsible for the murders of 11 women in Nevada, Utah, Wyoming, and Colorado in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Wow. So maybe we'll have to look into that. Mm-hmm. So kind of the last thing that I want to talk about about Lisa's case, as I mentioned earlier, her mother... Sheila Kimmel poured her heart out and wrote a book about her daughter's murder titled The Murder of Lil Miss. The book was released in 2013 and you can find it on Amazon. I didn't get a chance to read it yet, but it's definitely on my list. Um, Like I said, I read some excerpts from it and that's where I got some of this stuff from, Mm -hmm. like her background and all that, but it just seems like a really good book and gosh, that seems like such a hard thing to have to do you know but it might have been a little therapeutic for her though well and she said but the mom has said it wasn't oh that it was not therapeutic for them but the reason that they did it was that so other victims families can know that like it's okay to be mad like it's okay Mm -hmm. to you know be upset about it i mean yeah and maybe that's why they want to talk to him so bad in jail yeah it's just really it's just really sad and I just wanted to mention the book in case any other listeners are interested in reading it. It's got like 4.6 out of 5 stars on Amazon. So mm-hmm. the coroner who worked on the case, the one that I talked about earlier, um, he's quoted on the back cover of the book saying, quote, In my 40 years as a coroner, I never encountered a case this disturbing to me or the community. This book is a powerful and emotional read, end quote. Mm. Yeah. Also in the book, Sheila mentions other murdered women... And women who are still missing that were murdered or, or disappeared at the same time and in the same locations, several states, including Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, Nevada, and Kansas, where Eaton is known to have traveled. Yeah. Which I'm assuming is like the Great Basin serial killer that I already mentioned. So, like I said, we might have to look more into this. But And I think that's why I read something about that's why she wants to talk to him. Oh, really? Before he dies because she wants to ask him about the other murders. Like, you know, I guess they're trying to get these other women's families, you know, some justice if it was him. And closure, yeah. Right. But, you know, and I I mean, my thing is you're in jail. You're going to be in jail. You're either going to be sentenced to death again or you're going to be in jail for the rest of your life. Like, Don't why? be selfish Exactly. Again. Like, why not just... That was DTL too, though, did that, huh? Yeah. Yeah, but like, why not just give these families, you know, like some you're not closure? going anywhere, right? Even if you're, but if your death sentence is like, if you don't get sentenced to death again, you're like gonna you're, be in jail for the rest well, of your life. You're not going anywhere, right. dude. Like you know, like you, you might said, as well that's start just... orchestrating your. Well, no, you only get a last meal if you yeah sentence to death. Well, that's just like so. Like you said, it's it's selfish. There's no other way to to describe it. But I also think some of these serial killers that do this or that just don't want to tell anybody where the rest of the bodies are or their victim count because if they're in it, control yeah and they're re-victimizing people from behind bars yeah you know like that's disgusting and they probably get off on that mm-hmm. you know Ugh, that's just a really sad case mm-hmm. so as promised i have a couple quick announcements um before we wrap up today so as you guys know we've kind of touched on it in a couple episodes but things have been really crazy for us since the start of the pandemic and I also just started a new job. And if you guys remember, I also have two kids. So life has been absolutely insane lately. Um, so Amanda and I talked and we decided that we would take a little break. So we're planning to take off the month of July to enjoy our summer, take a breather, and hopefully recover from the havoc coronavirus wreaked on our lives. Right. <laughs> 
And I think we've mentioned it already, but quarantine has really affected our motivation to, like, do anything, including... Live. (laughs) (laughs) Like, including researching and writing. I mean, we've pushed through. We have, yeah. But... It, it was tough. <laughs> yeah, but I'm hoping that taking a little time off to rest and recharge will help, and we'll be back in August better than ever. Mm-hmm. So if you miss us during our break, feel free to send us some case suggestions yes. to look into. Um, we will be researching during this time. We yeah, just won't yeah. be releasing new episodes. Right. Also, um, since we're going to be off for the entire month of July, we figured we'd do a contest uh, giveaway. So to enter like our page and then share our facebook page with your friends and in the description tell us your favorite episode Mm -hmm. and explain why and once you've done this take a screenshot of your post and email it to us at homicidehomegirls at gmail.com and i'm pretty sure our our email is listed on our facebook page Mm -hmm. so you can get to it you know from there easily and you have between now and july 24th 2020 to enter and we'll announce a winner on August 5th, 2020. Yep. Uh, so, good luck and, you know, enter our contest. We figured we wanted to do a little something since we're going to, you know, take off. Yeah, and I like <laughs> a just, bit. we just have to pretty much um, narrow down <laughs> what your prize will be. Right. We have so many options, so much good stuff. But, right. Um, so. so, yeah, sorry, like I said, sorry. We're taking a break, but, you know, we feel but like... But also not sorry. What, yeah, but, I mean, we just feel like that's what we need to do. Yeah, we right are. Right now, take a little break. Behind so. the scenes, we'll not be taking a break. Right, but, yeah. So, we'll be back in August. Um, but, yeah. Better uh, than ever. Hopefully. Yeah, I don't think I have anything else. No. So, y'all, that's the case of the murder of Lil Miss Lisa Marie Kimmel. All right, you guys. Have a great summer. Bye. Thank you for listening to Homicide Homegirls. If you enjoyed today's episode, head on over to our Facebook page and leave us a review or rate us on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. If you want to be the first to know when an episode is released, make sure you subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on Instagram at Homicide Homegirls, Facebook at facebook.com slash Homicide Homegirls Podcast, and Twitter at Homegirls Pod. If you would like to suggest an episode, use the form located on our Facebook page. Once a month, we plan to answer fan-submitted questions in a segment we like to call hashtag AskTheHomeGirls. So be sure to use the form on our Facebook page to submit your questions.